You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. pray together and uh, Reggie's going to be leading our children's church today so as kids begin to make their way into that direction we thank the Lord for this ministry good group of kids Reggie if you have any problems remember we have a trained psychiatrist in the room that can handle any issues that you may have down there Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you love us. Lord, just been a beautiful time. Josie, Miss Josie, dear Lord, making public her decision to follow you in believer's baptism. And what what a joy that is. What a beautiful picture it is of being cleansed and set free of the sins of our past, of our future. Dear Lord, being washed by the blood of the Lamb, being holy and clean and righteous because the imputed righteousness of Christ has been put to our account and we've been set free. The guilt and the bondage that comes from the enemy comes from our sin. Lord, we pray today, dear Lord, we thank you for the songs, dear Lord. They have specially spoken to my heart. And Lord, how could, what better way to end than to be reminded that you're a good, good Father. You're perfect in all your ways. You never make mistakes. Lord, we ask you right now to wrap your arms around us. Dear Lord, speak truth into our lives. Lord, cleanse me. Forgive me, dear Lord, for anything that I've said or done or thought. Lord, wash me in the blood of the Lamb. Let me be a tool, a vessel in your hand. And Lord, we give you all the glory and honor. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Just remain standing, if you would, and take your Bibles. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Job. The book of Job over in the Old Testament there, the book of Job. Okay, good. John says, I've got some images to go with the message, and that's great. But anyway, today I'm, I'm speaking on an issue that, uh, that seems to be on the forefront in our nation today, and that is the issue of abortion. And, and let me say that when you talk about something like this, it's always painful. Let me give you an example. When I talk about the sanctity of marriage, I, I talk about um, the issue of divorce. I always know that when I'm, when I'm speaking that there are people that have gone through a divorce. And uh, when I talk about marriage and then I look at some of the people that have gone through a painful divorce and God's blessed and put their lives back together, given them a good marriage and a good family. You know, I always say that uh, when I talk to people that are going through a divorce, they'll always make this statement. They'll say, Brother Jeff, it was like going through hell. It was like a second death. I wouldn't, listen, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And I, and I would always say when I had to speak on the issue of marriage, and I talk, and would talk about divorce, I always wanted them to know that because of God's grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, that He offers a new life. And so I want you to know today that if you're here today, and those that might be listening on our podcast or, or, or listening by way of, of something else, 
then I want you to know today, if you've gone through an abortion, that God not only cleanses, not only forgives, He gives you a new life. And, and I believe this, uh, Jeffrey and I, we, uh, he had a paper, Transducianism. It's a, uh, it's a theological term, but the, our church fathers battled with the origin of the soul. And I am a transducianalist. It's a difficult word to say, but the, but the bottom line is, is that I believe that at the point of conception that a soul is born. And that's why we believe that that, that unborn child in the womb is, uh, is a sacred entity created in the image of God, even at the point of conception. Now, I also believe this because I hold to that conviction. John, you can knock that word out. You go back and edit this. So my theological friends won't hear me stumbling through that word, transducianism or whatever. <laughs> but anyway... Again, what that means is theological term just mainly, mainly believes this or teaches this, that the origin of the soul begins at the point of conception where life and there is the image of God even at the very beginning of conception. Now, for people who have had an abortion or people who are listening, and I, I remember a woman who came one time, sat down in my office, worked in our preschool department years ago in a previous church I pastored, she looked across my desk. She began to cry. She said, Brother Jeff, I want you to know I've had three abortions. And she said, there's so many emotional scars and somehow I find, I find a sense of serving in the preschool as a way of helping me and walked her through that emotional scars and trauma. I believe this. I believe that there'll come a point in heaven when God will take a mother who has gone through this and he'll smile and say, I want to show you something. And in that moment, I believe that God will introduce her to the child that she never saw. Confused, troubled, traumatized by an unwanted pregnancy. Maybe not the support and love of a man who helped bring that about. God will simply say, I want you to see what I saw from the very beginning of conception. You know, God brings healing. And if you don't hear anything else now, let me tell you, this is a very, very deep, technical, depending a lot on my notes, but I'm going to walk through, you, through the first part of it. It's going, to be, uh, it's going to sound laborsome. But what I want to do, just like we did when we dealt with homosexuality, I want to give you the tools so that you can go back and listen and understand the issue. That's what I want. I want to educate you and I today. So that's where we are today. But in Job chapter 10, uh, this week I read the book of Job. Just read the whole book one morning. Just reading early in the morning. And I came to this and I thought I'd never seen this before. But in Job chapter 10, beginning at verse 8, Job says, Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Boy, that's a good question to the abortionist, isn't it? Job said, your hand shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together? 
with bones and sinews. You gave me life and showed me kindness. And in your providence watched over my spirit. Now look at verse 18. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? If you look there and you see, Job recognizes that God is in the process, and Job understood this, of knitting and fashioning the unborn in the womb. And in verse 18 says, And God, you brought me out of the womb. I was uh, uh, worked with an ambulance service for years, and I can tell you one thing, no matter how many times we had to pick up a woman who was in the middle of delivery, it was always a stressful moment. And I wondered if it was about as stressful for me as it was for her. And Alicia back there is saying, absolutely not. One of the things they told us was, you're, you're not delivering the baby she is. You're just merely catching it in the process. But it's scary catching a slimy little new life in your hands and holding it and trying to get it to breathe. So, you know, Job here gives us a very, very good, clear picture of being created and God bringing out of the womb. Let's pray again. Lord, we love you. We just give you glory. Lord, bear with us, Lord, as we look at some of the statistics and the information that will merely be information. And then, dear Lord, give us the wisdom to know how to understand this issue in a nation that's ripped apart by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now, again, first of all, when we talk about abortion, we have to ask the question, what is it? Now, let me give you a definition here. Abortion is defined... Now, this may you may say, well, that's common sense. Abortion is defined as the ending of a pregnancy due to the removing of an embryo or fetus before it can survive outside the mother's uterus. An abortion that occurs spontaneously naturally is known as a miscarriage and sometimes women have had miscarriages maybe you have when deliberate steps are taken to end a pregnancy it is called an induced abortion or less frequently or less frequently an induced miscarriage i think it was tuesday i believe it was on a tuesday january 22nd of this year we celebrated the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. It was a landmark decision issued in 1973 by the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to that uh, ruled as to the constitutionality of the law or laws that criminalized or restricted access to abortions. The court, again, the court ruled 7-2 to that a right to privacy under due process clause under the 14th Amendment. Now, the 14th Amendment deals with the citizens' rights. But even as I thought about that, I thought about what the unborn's rights were. Extended to the woman's decision to have an abortion. But that this right must be balanced originally Roe v. Wade, against the state's interest in regulating abortions, protecting a woman's health, and protecting the potentiality of, of a human life. Now, arguing that the state's interest, in other words, there would be a conflict with the federal government and the state over the issue of abortion. Let me put this in terms going back to the Civil War. 
In the Civil War, when the North and the South were battling, and many of the, listen, for African American, many of the analogies and the arguments for pro-slavery are the arguments today for pro-abortion. Because slavery, it dealt with the personhood of a human being. It dealt with the fact that some people saw it as property and they had the right to do with that person or that, in, that entity. They could do with it whatever they wanted. It was also a matter of the federal government, Abraham Lincoln and the federal government saying to the state government, no, this is a moral and ethical issue and you do not have states' rights here and we will enforce, the federal government will enforce the law. And you had conflict of states. So this gives you a little bit of a picture here, but they bring up arguing that these states' interests became stronger. This is originally over Roe v. Wade, over the course of a pregnancy. The court resolved, the Supreme Court resolved this balancing test by tying state regulation of abortion to the third trimester of the pregnancy. Now later, in a similar case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, it was 1992, the court rejected Roe v. Wade, the uh, Roe's trimester, trimester framework by affirming its central holding that a woman has a right to an abortion until fetal viability. The road decision defined viability, fetal viability, as potentially the ability of the baby to live outside the womb of the mother, albeit with artificial aid. Justices in the case acknowledged that viability, the ability of a baby to live outside the womb, occurred between 23 and 24 weeks, or sometimes even earlier in light of medical advances. One legal expert said this, and I want you to listen closely. The problem is that many in the legal community saw Roe v. Wade as an extreme form of judicial activism. Now you may say, well, what does judicial activism mean? It means that the federal government, the Supreme Court, moves away from existing law and makes an opinion based on their personal opinion rather than the law. That's called judicial activism. And here they were saying there is a need for judicial restraint. In other words, the difficulty sometimes on the Supreme Court is to make a decision without allowing your personal convictions and opinions to come into it. John and I were talking about the title of this message, and he said, why not do just what you did with homosexuality? Where we said, what's the problem? And that's what we're talking about today. What is the problem? Recently, we saw Governor Como of New York, who for fear, and you may say, well, what is, what's happening in Virginia and New York? States are becoming extremely nervous that the Supreme Court is positioning itself to reverse Roe v. Wade, and if it does so, states are trying to buy into the argument, realizing that the federal government may throw it back into state legislatures, and thereby the states are, are kind of they're kind of getting ready for the judicial battles that may come. One writer said, "What is the problem? Recently, we, we have seen the New York." the state of New York under Governor Cuomo, who for fear of Roe v. Wade being overturned, is positioning the state of New York to protect the right of a woman to have an abortion. 
and has given that right now and is, is basically pulling out all restraints because of a Democratic-controlled House and Senate and giving sweeping legislation in New York in favor of abortion. For example, in New York, such as personnel other than a doctor who can perform an abortion. Beyond that, allowing late-term abortions, allowing partial birth abortions. And you may say, what is partial birth abortion? And let me tell you, folks, you're not going to like some of this because it's all literally nauseating. I got sick. Partial birth abortion is that a, the baby's feet are delivered out to the point of the head and then an instrument is stuck into the brain of the baby's head and the back of its skull and the baby is killed. That's partial birth. And in the state of New York, they're positioning themselves to, to legalize abortion to the degree that it almost removes every restraint, even the protection that could be provided for a mother. Let me look at, let me give you some... Let me give you some information just on New York, and I'll tell you why New York is important to me. In 2016, the most recent stats, 82,189 abortions were performed in the state of New York. 89,189. 91% were performed in settings other than a hospital. Did you hear that? 91% of the abortions, over 82,000, were performed outside of a hospital. 57% of those were on women between the ages of 20 to 29. Just over 1,700, or 2.3%, were conducted when the baby were, uh, was at 20, years, I mean, 20 weeks of, of development or older. Uh, do we have any pictures there, John? Do we have any pictures of... Of at the stages of a baby here. I think that might be good if we have those. And at any point you feel led to put something up, feel free. There is a baby week zero to six weeks. Can you go here seven to ten weeks? Here's 11 to 14 weeks. 15 to 18 weeks. 19 to 22. We still haven't reached New York City. Go up. I'm at New York. There you go. To abort a baby this size, sometimes what you do, you deliver the feet and then you, you, you do a partial birth abortion so that you can deliver a dead, a dead baby. But going back to New York, just over 1,700 abortions, 2.3% were conducted when the baby was at 20 weeks or older. So you're getting up to this stage right here. Just over 2,800 abortions were performed in Erie and Niagara counties th that year in 2016, according to the state health department. And you may say, well, Pastor, why are you choosing New York? Because your pastor was born in Niagara Falls, New York. I come from Niagara County. Let me give you some methods of abortion, and you will not like these. But you need to understand what we face today in our nation and why we are so divided. Number one, the majority of abortions are performed using a chemical called RU486. It is a pill that can be taken up to the first 70 days, the first 10 weeks of pregnancy, and it causes the uterus lining to peel away, therefore killing the baby. Number two is what they call the suction and curatage abortion. It's where the baby is suctioned and then pieced together, put back together to ensure that all the parts have been found. 
Number three is a second trimester uh, pregnancy in which they call it dilation and evacuation method. It involves, for example, a fully developed baby in which a long tooth clamp is used to reach in, grab whatever part you can get of the baby and pull the baby from the womb part by part, ripping them to pieces. Number four is intact dilation and extraction, what we call again partial birth. It is to deliver the feet and leave the head in the mother so that the doctor is able to insert an instrument into the back of the head and remove the child's brains, thereby killing the baby. Number five, 16 weeks plus, a saline solution is introduced into the amniotic fluid where the baby will ingest it and then dies a painful death. Number six, potassium chloride is given at 21 weeks and five days plus it is injected into the heart of a baby. So if you go back to 21 weeks at this stage, what they can do is they can uh, introduce potassium chloride into the baby, injecting it into the baby's heart where the baby has a massive heart attack and dies. Let me tell you, anybody who's ever had a heart attack would tell you this. When we would pick up somebody who was having a heart attack, they always looked and they were in agonizing pain and they would say, it's as if an elephant is standing on my chest. And pain is an issue. Amy, my daughter, who's a dentist, but debated long and hard about becoming an OBGYN doctor, made this statement. She said, Dad, anyone who believes in abortion should have to attend one. I wrote, at present, the guest is somewhere between 50 and 60 million abortions. The largest abortion provider killed 321,384 babies in 2017. That, in uh, this statement, says that's larger than the population of L.A., the averaged 83, they averaged Planned Parenthood, averaged 83 abortions to one adoption referral. So every referral by Planned Parenthood for adoption, they had a 83 abortions in comparison to that. Planned Parenthood, what is Planned Parenthood? Planned Parenthood was an organization that was founded by a woman by the name of Margaret Sanger. Just reading real quickly here, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, argued for compulsory, compulsory, uh, compulsory sterilization and segregation for people with disabilities, including her list of disabilities. It almost sounds like Nazism. Including in her list of disabilities were illiterates, paupers, unemployables, criminals, prostitutes, dope fiends, classifying many of them in special departments under the government, uh, where they would be segregated, put on farms, left in places where they would be monitored and where they would be systematically not allowed to have children. The article states that those who could only return to society, in other words, they go through her camp, afterwards would only be allowed back into society if they agreed to sterilization. You may say, where did you get your news from some Christian conservative. No, this is John J. Conley. He's Jesuit of Maryland province, a regular columnist for uh, a major publication, the Jesuit Review. He is the current chair of the philosophy and theology department at Loyola University in Maryland. Listen to what he said. He continues as Hanger's eugenics, he called it. Eugenics project carried its own racial preoccupation 
in a letter of December. And you, I listen. This is why I went back and checked his credentials because I've heard this over and over again. And I'll give you statistics that ought to make every African American listen closely. In a letter of December 10th, 1939, Declarence Gamble, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, explains the nature of her organization's outreach to the African American community. The most successful educational approach, she said to Gamble, the most, accepts, this most successful educational approach to the Negro is through religious appeal. We don't want the word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. He continues to say that Sanger, in her autobiography, proudly recounts her address to the women of the KKK in Silver Lake, New Jersey in 1926. Between 2008 2014, 2008 to 2014, abortion declined by 25%. I want you to listen to this. It went from 19.4% to 14.6% per thousand women. In other words, 19.4 out of a thousand women had an abortion. The abortion rate went down 25% between 2008 and 2014 in women ages 15 to 44. The abortion rate for adolescents, 15 to 19, declined in that period of time 46%. It was the largest of any group. Now you may say, well, wait a minute, maybe there's a great moral awakening in this country. But no, we're as promiscuous as ever. It's just because of the introduction of contraceptives now in school-age children that we've been able to bring this statistic down. Abortion rates declined for all racial and ethnic groups, but were still larger among non-white women. In 2018, the highest rate of abortion is black non-Hispanic, 27.1 per thousand. Hispanic, 18.1 per thousand. Other non-Hispanic could be Asian, 16.3 per thousand. White non-Hispanic, no change, still 10 per a thousand. Now remember what I just said about Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and look at the largest contributor to abortion in America today. Again, Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of abortions in America. They cost between $350 to $950 per abortion. And you may say, well, why do we hear so much about Planned Parenthood? Because Planned Parenthood survives on the tax dollars of our federal government. In other words, it's not a matter of you just not agreeing with abortion, taking a stand and saying, I'm pro-life. You have to understand that a portion of your taxes goes to pay for the systematic killing, the largest provider of abortions in America today. And you have to understand that if you're African-American, you're the largest contributor to the children that are being aborted today. Last thing, emotional, emotional and mental damage. I told you of the woman who came, sat down in my office, looked across the desk for a moment, just sobbed and cried, sobbed and cried, and then looked and made this statement. I had absolutely no earthly idea. She said, Brother Jeff, I'm just going to be straight with you. I've had three abortions, and, they're, and it's killing me. 
She said, there's so much guilt, there's so much weight. I've tried to put it behind me. It's been years, but I just can't let go. Nobody knows this. What do I do with this emotional damage and scarred up life now? How do I move on? And for a long time counseling and her walking through the forgiveness and the imputed righteousness of Christ and the fact that Christ covers her in his righteousness and she's been forgiven. You know, a lot of times we think, well, this sin's here and this sin's here. You know, the Bible says if you call your brother a fool or you speak to him in anger or you call him a moron, you know, the Bible says you can murder, you can murder him. You ever seen somebody destroy, put somebody down so bad they never came back? They might as well have been dead. But on emotional and mental damage of abortion... According to more than one article in Psychology Today, I was looking at an article written by a woman by the name of Priscilla Coleman, Ph.D. She said women who have an abortion have an 81% higher risk of subsequent health problems compared to women who have not had an abortion. Women who have an abortion have 138% higher risk of mental health problems compared to women who gave birth. Women with a history of abortions have higher rates of anxiety, depression, alcohol abuse, and suicidal behavior. Another writer wrote, I think in Psychology Today, another wrote of a compilation of former abortion clinic staff who attested, as did journalists both in the United States and the United Kingdom, that counselors in abortion clinics conceal mental and physical risk as well as the violent end of a child's life in order to sell abortions. And what angers me so much, Tamara, and I say this to Tamara because Tamara is a, a brilliant African-American young lady who is a, who's a psychiatrist, now specializing. What angers me and this is why I wanted to be very careful. What angers me is when I read articles from Washington Post and New York Times that discount the credibility of trained professional people who are giving their opinions. I'm telling you this much, people. Do not believe everything you read. I looked at a New York Times article and it made me so angry because there was no credibility, no scholarly or academic professional, nothing in it and yet it had the ability to sway a lot of people contrary to clear statistical and factual evidence. But now let's leave that. Real quickly, well, we don't hardly have time. Let me leave you on a positive note. Look at, look at take a right from Job. Look at Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, in Psalm 139, written by King David, beginning at verse 13. King David in Psalm 139, verse 13 says, For you, and he's speaking to God here, said, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. You see, that unformed body would give us the idea that even as he was in the process of creating, fashioning, even when it was not even fully formed, 
he says here, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Let me ask you a question. Who's fashioning the child in the womb? God. God's fashioning this child in the womb. And we read earlier out of Job chapter 10 verses 8 through 13. But again, Job said, God, you're doing this work inside of the womb, inside my mother's womb. Job said, God, as King David said, God, you were fashioning and forming me. Now, I wrote this question down. Imagine you're building a table. And someone comes into your shop and they take a hammer. And they begin to destroy the table that you put all this time and attention in. How would you feel? Maybe you'd be angry. We don't have time, but I would take you over to Jeremiah chapter 1. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, you know what God says to Jeremiah? He says to Jeremiah, the great Old Testament prophet, he said, Jeremiah, he said, before you were ever born, when you were in the womb, Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I was fashioning you, I was forming you, I was making you into my prophet. Do you remember in Luke chapter 1 when, when Elizabeth and John, uh, I mean when Elizabeth finds herself with a with child and it's John the Baptist? And at a certain point then the angel comes and announces to Mary that you're going to give birth to Christ, the Messiah. And Mary goes to her, her, her cousin Elizabeth and when she walks in and, and, and Elizabeth looks at her, Elizabeth goes... It's like a woman. I asked Sheila one time, I said, what's it like when you say the baby kick for the first time? She looked at me and smiled and said, it's like a finger's on the inside of you and it rubs down and you can feel it. But not John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth. He kicks at the announcement of the Christ because already He's doing what God has called him to do. He's going to say, Behold the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. He's the forerunner to Christ. Martin Luther King Jr. loved the book of Amos. And Amos chapter 5 verse 24 says this, and it was quoted by King often, But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. And I thought to myself, if Martin Luther King Jr. were alive today, he would be preaching out of Amos chapter 1, verse 13, where God judged the, the nation of Ammon. And he said, I tell you why I'm judging you, Ammon, for three sins, but the fourth one did it. God said to the nation of the Ammonites, he said, I'm going to destroy you because you ripped open the wombs of pregnant women. I thought to myself, Martin Luther King Jr., who could preach like nobody else, he would be preaching out of Amos chapter 1, verse 13, waking up the African-American. I'll get into this next week, but I will say this. In the midst of the civil rights movement early in it, Martin Luther King Jr., as far as I, as I can remember, and what is sad, we will celebrate that birthday. We will celebrate this month when most African-American children have never read his autobiography. Martin Luther King Jr. said that he 
you have to remember something. After the ending of slavery, the African American were Republican, 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 Republican. Until in the midst of the Civil Rights Movement, I think it was Barry Goldwater, I'm not sure. But Martin Luther King Jr. was begging the Republican Party to stand behind them on civil rights. And they refused, and John F. Kennedy said, we will stand with you. And King said this, and I've got quotes, I know on this. King always warned the African American, he said, always be prepared to leave a party. And basically what King's words were the Republican Party back at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, in the middle of it, he said, you either change your platform or we'll change our party. I think it's the key. Now, I've got an end, but I, I, I want to tell you a couple of quick stories. I had a friend of mine, and, and I'm going to leave it here, and we'll catch the next part of it next time, but there's a part two to this. Steve Taylor, a friend of mine, is the, was the pastor at First Baptist Albuquerque, and he was preaching on the subject of abortion. He was talking about and the advances that we have, we're coming into another problem. And the problem is simply this. As we gaze into the womb, we can see, we, can, we are able to attain so much more. Now we're reaching the point that because of any, any disability, any little problem, we can, we can go into the womb and, 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 and parents and, and medical staff can just simply say, well, this child, one leg is shorter than the other. Or there's, a, there's a slight disability here. So in the pregnancy, so now we're dealing with the legislation trying to protect ourselves from ourselves. Preacher firing away and he was at First Baptist Albuquerque, New Mexico. He said after he finished that sermon, people came up to talk to him when all of a sudden he could feel a pull on his jacket. He turned, there was a little boy in that church. He had Down syndrome. That little boy looked up at him and tears in his eyes. He knew what was at stake. He looked and he said, Brother Steve, thank you for standing up for us. My brother sits back there, swinging, clapping, disrupting. Sometimes I think to myself, I want to go back and say to my 62-year-old brother, could you please quiet it down just a little? You know what God says to me, son, his worship means more to me right now than anything I'm hearing. But the medical advances and the ability to look in a woman's womb could just as easily rob us of my brother. If you've ever watched the TV show called The Good Doctor, The Good Doctor is about a young man by the name of Sean Murphy. He is autistic. This past week we were watching Sean Murphy and some of the things in it may not be appropriate, but I'm going to tell you, here he is, he's severely autistic, but his brain is just brilliant. It's like my brother's, my brother would, my brother every night, to give you what I put up with, we would go to bed at night, and I'd look over and there's my brother, he'd be on his knees by the bed, and he would call the entire lineups of one NFL team after another, one player after another, all the coaches, and I would go, oh, Mike, please shut up and go to sleep. And I thought to myself, one day there'll be big men that'll be probably coming to him in heaven and saying, I thank you for praying for me. 
He would pray for the entire lineup. Green Bay Packers. He was a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Hank Stram, you'd go all the way through the lineup. But in The Good Doctor, it's a story of a young man, very young, named Sean Murphy. He's autistic, but his mind is brilliant. You can watch it calculating and forming and fashioning as he's thinking through the process and making a diagnosis. And sometimes the system, sometimes the system, the medical community, government, the regulations and the entities and those positions of power, they would kind of hone in on Sean Murphy. And, and, and one time he had a breakdown and he just curled up in a ball in the middle of the floor. And, and I began to cry. I just was sitting there weeping and crying. Sheila looking at me as if something was wrong with me. And in my heart I was saying, Sean Murphy, get on your feet. Stand on your feet, Sean. Go back into that situation. Heal that man. Heal that woman. Make that diagnosis. Sean, you're standing up for every autistic boy and girl in the whole world. Oh, God. Why? What right does anybody, what right does anybody have to make, to be so arrogant as to describe one person's value of life being greater than another's. How dare us play God. And next week, I will share with you, I promise you, I believe the quickest end to Roe v. Wade, I can tell you how Roe v. In, what Roe v. Wade can end like that. And I believe it with all my heart. And I want you to stand. We're going to Go to an invitation and God may be dealing with you. And you know the, the old statement, you know, evil prospers because good men do nothing. Evil prospers when good men and women do nothing. I can give you definitions. I can give you statistical information. I can talk to you about the emotional trauma and the emotional scars. I can talk, about, I can talk to you about the baggage. I can warn you of New York Times or Washington Post and some of the garbage that is put out called scholarly and scholastic. Academically, it's not. I can give you all this information. I can tell you about the methods of abortion. I can wake you up to the, to the, the horror of it. But if you and I don't stand up and do anything, if we remain silent, then there may come a day when our society deems you unproductive and ends your life. There were people that said when we were in the middle, I was born 1955, I'm 63 years old. There were people, preachers, that warned us when Roe v. Wade passed. They said it is the doorway to euthanasia and it will be the doorway to mercy killing and from there we will move to not being a vi the viability to society, the feasibility if a person is not contributing to society and is seen as a drain on society, then we will end that life. There is a danger when you and I value life so cheaply. R.C. Sproul made this statement to, to a group of us one time. He made this statement. He said, if we err, may we err on the side of life. 
If we don't know how to define it, then let's err in favor of it. But I say all that to say this, Jesus Christ loves every one of us. He loves the one who's committing the abortions. He loves the knife that opens up the womb. He loves every one of us. He's provided a way for you and I to be right with the Holy Heavenly Father. And just as I said a moment ago, I believe there'll be a day when women who have come to Christ and been forgiven of sins like this will come back, men, and they're just as guilty. The man is just as guilty as the woman. And men are scarred too by it. Proven fact. God can make all the difference in bringing forgiveness and joy to your life. And he, Father, we thank you, Lord. We love you. Lord, today it's been a difficult sermon, not the kind I enjoy preaching. But I thank you, dear Lord, that no matter what our sins may be, no matter what our failures may be, you wrap your arms around us and through the blood that was shed on Calvary, you give us forgiveness and you set us free. You may often slander us. He's the slanderer. He's diabolos, the devil, the slanderer who heaps this ridicule, this pain. Sometimes, dear Lord, our failures, our mistakes, our sins of the past. But we thank you that we serve a God who forgives us and cleanses us and provides a way for us to be in this room that need to give their life to Christ. May they come to a point of repentance and just simply cry out and say, Lord Jesus, cleanse me, forgive me. I'm sorry, I repent. Be my Lord and Savior. And when we do that, life changes. We become the temple of your Holy Spirit and you begin to remake us from the inside out. It's painful, it hurts, and sometimes we still stumble and fall. But you never forsake us. Lord, we pray, dear Lord, for whatever decision needs to be made that people will come.